Today I'll be continuing the series you've been in on the book of Exodus, and I've been given the task this morning of summarizing 13 chapters of the book of Exodus <laughs> in approximately 30-ish minutes. So, thanks a lot, Dave. <clears throat> For our scripture reading this morning, I've selected a few sections that capture the essence of our topic. So I'm going to read here from Exodus 25, Exodus 40, uh, and several places. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to take for me an offering from all whose hearts prompt them to give. You shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and gems to be set in the ephod and for the breastpiece, and have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. In accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then down in Exodus 40. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was set up. Moses set up the tabernacle, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the covenant and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the curtain for screening and screened the ark of the covenant as the Lord had commanded Moses." Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now in my church tradition, when the reader ends um, the reading, he says uh, the word of the Lord and everyone responds by saying, thanks be to God. So let's try that. The word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for the word. I thank you that you have given us the scriptures, and in these scriptures you say that your word is living and active. And so I ask today that you would speak, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would comfort us in places where we need comfort, and that you would give us hope. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Many people, when they come to the final portion of the book of Exodus, find themselves, uh, shall we say, a wee bit bored. Uh, truth be told, this is the part of Exodus, when you're reading through it, that people usually start to skim. And I confess to having been, been guilty of this. Most people find this section only slightly more interesting than the genealogy lists in the Bible. So here's an overview of what is covered in this thir these 13 chapters. Starting in Exodus chapter 25, we're given tw uh, seven chapters of somewhat repetitive, highly detailed, and seemingly obscure instructions about how to construct a large, movable tent. What the Bible refers to as the tabernacle. And then after these seven chapters, there are three chapters of narrative about Moses going up on the mountain and about the spectacular failure of Israel with the golden calf incident. This is the stuff that you've already talked about the last couple of weeks. And then the book of Exodus goes back to explaining in detail, again, about the construction of the tabernacle for six more thrilling chapters. Thirteen chapters on this large blanket fort-looking structure. 
And so here's the question. Why did the author of Exodus, or better yet, why did God think we needed 13 chapters devoted to this tent? What is so important about this structure that God would devote nearly one-third of the book of Exodus to talking about it? Like, why did it matter to ancient Israel? And what does it mean to us who follow Jesus today? That's what I want to talk about this morning. I'm going to suggest today that this topic, the topic of the tabernacle, uh, which later becomes the, the temple or is referred to as a sanctuary in some places, that this topic about the tabernacle is actually not just important for the book of Exodus. It's the key overarching theme that connects the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to suggest that we see this as a lens by which we understand Jesus and his entire ministry, including his life, death, and resurrection. And finally, I want to suggest that this theme is essential to us understanding our identity and our purpose as Christians. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that these 13 chapters are anything but obscure once you place them in their broader theological context. All right, so I've got my work cut out for me today. So where do we, where do we begin when talking about the tabernacle? Old Testament scholar John Walton, who you as a church hosted a few years ago here, he claims that the theme of the tabernacle or the temple begins in the opening chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 1. He suggests that the best way to understand the creation account is to see it as an ancient poetic way of describing God putting together and consecrating a temple for himself. In the ancient Near East, uh, a temple is understood as a place where the realm of God intersects with the realm of humanity or the domain of creation. It's where heaven and earth touch each other and co-mingle. And so the writer of Genesis, in describing creation the way that he does, is telling us that the entire cosmos were intended by God to be his temple. God intended heaven and earth to be united as a place of his unhindered presence. No barriers. One of the things that you find in the ancient uh, Near Eastern religion uh, that, that dominates uh, the whole area there is that temples typically had a garden attached to them uh, to provide a special place of leisure for the gods. And in that garden, there was usually an image of the god to whom the temple was devoted. Now, echoing this same pattern, the writer of Genesis describes a special garden in which an image was placed of the creator God that it was devoted to. The image, according to Genesis 1, is none other than humanity. Male and female together are the image of God. Now, Genesis 2 goes on to develop this picture and gives us a, a, a snapshot of what God had in mind for his creation. God is described as walking and talking with the man and, and the woman in the cool of the day in this lush garden that is defined by unhindered communion. But when we get to Genesis 3, we see that this primordial state of intimacy and all of the potential that God had in mind for his creation is destroyed by a fracture of trust. Humanity preferred autonomy to communion. And this resulted in a world of alienation. Creation was alienated from God, and humanity could no longer be in the unhindered presence of God. 
And this is all powerfully symbolized in Adam and Eve being exiled from their garden home and being barred from the unhindered presence of God by a powerful angelic being that is, that is referred to in the Bible as a cherubim. This, is the, this cherubim stands at the, uh, guarding the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword. And it's at this point that something changes and humanity is unable to bear the unhindered presence of God. From this point on, the whole story of the Bible is entirely focused on one overarching goal. How can God and his creation be brought back together in a state of, of intimacy and communion? And while this sounds perhaps rather simple, it's anything but simple. And this is the story in which the tabernacle plays a central role. All right, so fast forward to the, to the, uh, to the book of Exodus. God has chosen a particular people. He purchases, the, purchases them out of slavery, and his goal is to dwell among them. We learn in the book of Exodus that God intends to put up his own tent right in the middle of camp. But you see, there's a problem. There's an obstacle to God dwelling amongst the people. And the problem is this. God is holy, and the people are not. Now let me pause for a second and just say that it's impossible to understand the tabernacle or the temple without having a fairly substantial conception of God's holiness. Because contrary to what we might intuitively think, God setting up a tabernacle in the midst of his people did not actually resolve the problem of alienation between humanity and God. It did not. In fact, if anything, it highlighted it. And so this is the key to understanding the role of the tabernacle within the broader story of the Bible. The tabernacle both amplified the distance between humanity and God and simultaneously pointed toward the resolution of this distance. The tabernacle was designed by God to communicate two things at the same time. First, that God desired to come near to his people. That God wanted intimacy with his people. This is the heart of God for his creation. He is the God who wants to come near. But secondly, the tabernacle communicated that intimacy with God is quite difficult. Maybe said even more strongly than that, intimacy with God is impossible apart from God making it possible in some extraordinary way. And so what we see in the tabernacle is a living symbol of this paradoxical tension. God wants to be close to his people, and yet this is, humanly speaking, impossible. And the reason is that God's unhindered presence is way too intense. Do you remember how uh, when the Israelites stood uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God began to reveal his massive power and his might and his glory. And he, was, he had this booming voice, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and there were earthquakes. And you remember the people were terrified. They realized that the unhindered presence of God was way too intense for them. And so they pled with Moses to not have God talk to them. To not have God get too close to them. They preferred to have a mediator. You go up on the mountain, Moses, they said, and you tell us what God wants to say, but we don't want to be near. It's too intense. And so you can see how the idea of God pitching his own tent right in the middle of camp was not exactly what everyone wanted. 
And we shouldn't romanticize the tabernacle plan here. In fact, if the camp had taken a vote as to whether God could join them in the camp, I don't think it would have passed. <laughs> having God pitch his tent in the camp was a little like having a massive nuclear power plant built in your backyard. You might appreciate the endless supply of electricity, but how many of us would want a nuclear reactor 100 feet from our house? I've noticed that in our era, we seem to have a hard time conceptualizing God's holiness. I know I've struggled with this. We have an underdeveloped appreciation for the otherness, the intensity of God. As I've reflected on this, I think perhaps the best analogy that we have for understanding God's holiness is the sun. Um, S-U-N, the sun. As you probably know, the sun is vitally important for our planet. It gives energy, warmth, and it provides uh, what is necessary for life on the planet. And without it, life on earth would cease to exist. And so the sun is something very good. And yet, the sun is so massively powerful that even at 93 million miles distance from it, we are badly burned by the sun if we're not careful, at least if you have skin as white as mine. Do you remember uh, last summer when the solar eclipse was coming and how there were all those public safety announcements about not looking at the sun? Um, even looking at the sun, they said, for even a few seconds can burn your retina and permanently blind you. And so everyone had to put on those kind of goofy glasses um, and to see even a partial view of the sun at 93 million miles away. Think about that. Now, as we, as we all know, if you got in a spacecraft and you flew toward the sun and got anywhere near the sun, you'd be incinerated. Now, imagine taking the intensity of the sun and trying to contain it and place it in your neighborhood. Well, of course, you couldn't do that. Perhaps the closest thing we have to the intensity of what is happening in the sun is a nuclear explosion, which is like a miniature exponentially smaller contained version of what is happening in the sun. Well, one of the scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century was figuring out how to contain this power in such a way that we could create electricity. And that's what is happening in nuclear power plants, right? But as we've seen in the disasters of Fukushima in Japan or Chernobyl many years ago in Russia or Three Mile Island in the U.S., this has its risks, which is exactly why nuclear facilities have so much protection built into them. Tons and tons and tons of concrete, water cooling systems and more. And when people go into these places to do maintenance, they, they usually use like special lead-lined uh, suits and they follow very careful protocol. And they do all this because they have a very healthy respect for the intensity of nuclear power. But the intensity of what is happening in the nuclear power plant is minuscule compared to the sun. And here's the thing. The sun itself is merely a giant flaming ball of gas. It's really big and powerful to us, but it's a very minor and small part of the galaxy that we inhabit, and it's really nothing when you put it in, this, in the larger scheme of the billions and trillions of stars in the universe. And so we need to acknowledge that comparing God to the sun is kind of lame, really. It actually runs the risk of idolatry because the sun is a material part of the universe, and God is not. But as an analogy for God's holiness, it might, be, it might be as close as we can come to capturing a sense of the intensity of God's presence. And so to take this back to the, the book of Exodus, 
The idea of the tabernacle is to have a safe place for the intensity of God's presence to dwell among the people so that God could be, in some sense, near them, and yet the people could remain protected. Most of us have such a neutered view of God's power that we can't imagine that there's anything to be protected from. And that's precisely why we need to grapple with passages like the construction of the tabernacle. When you look carefully at the design and the layout of the tabernacle given to us in Exodus, you'll notice that the structure was designed so that God could be present in all of his intense glory in one particular place, in the space right above the Ark of the Covenant, which was kind of like the hot spot of connection between God and creation. Now, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was this place that was called the mercy seat, uh, which was actually not a seat. It's kind of confusing. It's just a lid that covers the Ark, But it was thought of as the seat of God's presence, the resting place for God's presence. And then, and this detail is so fascinating to me, I love this. On the lid, God told Moses that he was to place two figures of cherubim facing each other. Now, why the cherubim? This is a direct connection back to the story of the garden. Do you remember what was guarding the way to the unhindered presence of God? It was these angelic creatures the Bible calls cherubim. And so the image of a cherubim became for the people of Israel a kind of visual symbol to warn you that you were very close to something enormously powerful and potentially dangerous. It's like Israel's universal danger sign. Maybe like a cross and skull bones would be for us on a sign. And so what you see in the design of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus is that the ark has these statues of the cherubim that are facing each other on it. And then on the walls around the most holy place are these curtains, which are formed by curtains, I guess. They have cherubim on each of them, like the the image of a cherubim. And then on the big curtain that divides the most holy place, the holy of holies, from the, the holy place, there is an image of a cherubim. Warning, warning, warning. That's that's what's going on here. Israel would have seen in this, proceed at the risk of your own life. And so the place of God's presence was above the Ark of the Covenant, inside the most holy place, which was further hidden behind the holy place, which was inside of the tent of meeting, which was in the middle of the camp, surrounded by the priestly families and then the Levites, and then the tents of Israel. You have all these layers upon layers of protection. Kind of like near a nuclear facility, there's layers of protection where people can come close. And here's the thing. Nobody ever went into the most holy place except one person, the high priest, who stepped once a year into the most holy place for a brief moment in order to perform a particular ritual. And he would do this with great trepidation as the people all waited outside in silence. Before he stepped uh, behind the curtain... He would throw a load of incense on the incense altar that was right there beside the most holy place, hoping that a huge cloud of smoke would fill the most holy place so that he wouldn't have any risk of seeing the divine presence. This was very serious stuff. You can grasp some sense of the way that Israel thought about this from the classic scene from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) You remember the scene where the Nazis have discovered the Ark of the Covenant And they're getting ready to open the lid. And Indiana says to the woman who's tied up with him not too far away from where the Nazis are working, he yells like, close your eyes! Don't look! And then 
all the Nazis are looking, and they open the top, and the power of God kind of flows out from the ark, and it melts that guy's face off. You remember? Like, really pretty gross, yeah. So that's Hollywood trying to evoke the seriousness of God's presence. I actually welcome it. I wish Hollywood would do a little more of that sort of thing. Um, But the point of Exodus, um, the point that Exodus is trying to convey is actually not too different. No person can see God's face, God's glory, and live. That's what Dave talked about last week with Moses up on the mountain, you remember. And so the tabernacle, again, embodies this paradoxical tension that God wants to be close to his people. He wants intimacy with his creation, but this is impossible, humanly speaking. And so the point of the tabernacle was always to symbolically hold this tension. The tabernacle was never intended to to resolve this tension, actually. It was merely a preliminary way of God being with his people. And as the story of the Bible progresses, uh, about 500 years after this, a guy named King Solomon builds a permanent temple that's based on the exact same model as the tabernacle. And this is a great moment for the people of God. This is huge. No longer is God meeting them in a sanctuary that's just a tent. It's now a beautiful building. One of the great wonders of the ancient world. And there's this beautiful passage in 1 Kings chapter 8 that describes the glory of God descending visibly on the temple. This is so that everyone knows that God is pleased to dwell in it. Seems like things are going well, but then the story takes a darker turn. After generations of disobedience, after ignoring warning after warning after warning from God, Ezekiel chapter 10 recounts the horrifying description of God's glory departing from this temple. In a reversal of what, we just, what I just described in 1 Kings chapter 8, God withdraws his manifest presence from his people. They've made it clear that, that they don't want his presence among them by their systematic disobedience. And so God withdraws. And then the unthinkable happens. The temple is destroyed. The temple is destroyed and the people are exiled back into slavery. It's like the reversal of the whole story of the book of Exodus. Everything goes backwards. They spend an entire generation living in a foreign land. But then they return and are allowed by their overlords, the Persians, to rebuild a, a temple. And the hope is that God's presence would return. But here's the thing. There is no record, there is no story in the Old Testament of God's presence ever returning to the temple. Instead, it seems to stand as a kind of monument to a lost hope. And it seems to God's people like the whole plan has gone off the rails. It seems like things have gone backwards. God is so distant, and most people have just accepted it. But in the midst of this dark time, There are some faithful folks amongst God's people who long for the return of God to his people. They long for it. They know that this is their only hope. And so the book of Isaiah chapter 64 has this aching cry. I love this. Isaiah 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Like they're saying, we'll take scary Sinai again. Just come back down, please. Please. And generations of people have this prayer on their lips. 
And then as the New Testament opens, we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verse 14, And the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what the Greek word is. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of God has appeared again. There's a new tabernacle. There's a new temple. And then the Gospel of Mark tells us in chapter 1 and verse 10, describing the baptism of Jesus, Mark says this, And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And here we have the cry of Isaiah 64 answered. The new temple, the new tabernacle is filled with the presence of God. God has come to indwell his temple and his name is Jesus. He is the meeting place between heaven and earth. He is this living paradox. He is the fullness of God's holy glory, and yet this glory is cloaked in a form of a human who can rub shoulders with the average people, who can even wash the dirty feet of his sinful disciples. And in this way, Jesus is able to do something that the tabernacle and the temple could never do. They could simply hold the tension of God's desire to be near, and yet the impossibility of such. But Jesus, uniquely in himself, was the embodiment of full humanity and full divinity. He was the meeting place of heaven and earth. And as such, Jesus fulfills this very important role, this essential role as the mediator between God and humanity. That's the language of Paul. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, he says, For there is one God, and there is also one mediator between God and, and humankind. Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Paul is trying to put in words, trying to help us understand that Jesus isn't some kind of halfway point between God and humanity. Instead, in some mysterious way, he embodies both humanity and divinity. What Paul is trying to articulate is that Jesus in himself is a bridge that stretches from the otherness, the holiness of God, to us. But for a bridge to work, it has to connect on both sides. And so Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Now, many people have come to wonder, like, why do we need this language of mediation? Why do we need a mediator? Didn't Jesus come to tell us that God isn't actually scary or intense? And the answer to this question is a resounding no. Jesus does not lessen the intensity of God in any way. He doesn't downplay the holiness of God. Quite the opposite. His very presence as a mediator only exists to reinforce and underline the essential otherness of God. In fact, Jesus himself makes it clear that he says, nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. That's what he says in John 14, right? Nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. It is only in and through Jesus that we come to the Father. That's the language of the New Testament, in and through. We must join ourselves to him. We must be clothed in his body in order to safely dwell in the manifest presence of God. I was trying to think of an analogy for this notion of Jesus as the necessary mediator or the vehicle for us to be in God's presence. And for some reason, I thought of deep sea diving. I don't know why. I've never done it. Uh, but maybe this will help give an image to what I'm saying for somebody here. So for years, uh, people couldn't figure out how to go down deep in the ocean 
Because once you go down even like 100 feet underwater, the pressure becomes so intense that it begins to crush the human body. I don't know if you know that. But your heartbeat can slow down to like 14 beats a minute, like a certain depth. It wasn't until the year 1715 that, uh, when a British inventor created an underwater chamber capable of going down a whole 60 feet that people could figure out how to sustain underwater pressure of even that depth for more than a few seconds. The guy was a genius. Uh, he made loads of money from rescuing gold and silver from the numerous shipwrecks that were basically at 50 to 60 feet underwater that previously had been inaccessible. Now, fast forward to our time, there are now special super reinforced suits where you can go down like 2,000 feet into the depths of the ocean without being crushed by the pressure. Now, to draw the analogy back to God, and this is a little cheesy, so sorry. In a sense, Jesus acts as a special armored suit that we can climb into and be united with such that we can be safely taken into the depths of God's presence. But without him, Without being in Christ, which is the language of the New Testament, we would be utterly crushed by the intensity of God's holy glory. To be in God's... <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> yes, I love it. To be in God's unhindered presence is as impossible as existing deep in the sea without a protective suit or as being in the heart of the sun without some sort of protection. But in Christ, this is not only possible, it's our destiny. And this is the essence of our salvation, isn't it? It's what God has in mind for each of us. It's what the tabernacle could only point toward, but which in Christ we are now invited into. We have been invited to entrust ourselves completely to, to Christ to be incorporated into Christ's body through baptism. That's what happens in baptism. You're incorporated into his body. He is calling us to himself, and there is nothing that he desires more than for us to be fully united to him. If you're familiar with the Eastern Church, they use this word theosis. It's being joined to God through Christ. And this is the only hope, because only in Christ is there the hope of full intimacy with God in his unhindered presence. And so I want you to hear God's invitation to you today. He has made the impossible possible in Christ. He has made a way for us to be in his unhindered presence through Christ. But I need to also offer you a word of warning. There's a lot of confusion out there about intimacy with God floating around these days. And so I want you to hear this warning. Please don't trick yourself into thinking that you could have intimacy with God on your own terms. Don't do it. You cannot. The whole story of the tabernacle is trying to warn us that this is simply impossible. No amount of meditation, no amount of study, no amount of do-goodery, no amount of experimenting with LSD or magic mushrooms or hallucinogens, whatever. Nothing can get you into the unhindered presence of God. There's only one way to the Father's glory. There's only one way to the true intimacy with God, and it is through the Son. It is through the one who came from the Father, who tabernacled among us, who has made a way to bring us to the Father. Are you tracking with me here? 
I know what I'm saying is not popular, but it's true. Now, I haven't actually given you the rest of the trajectory of where the story of the tabernacle goes as it's described in the Bible. Unfortunately, time will not allow me to go into it in much detail, but I want to briefly share an outline of the trajectory of where this whole thing goes. The New Testament teaches that we are joined to Christ, as we've been saying, and in that joining to Christ, we become an extension of what Jesus was in his incarnation, in his bodily life. So what this means is that we who entrust ourselves to Christ and receive the Holy Spirit are made into a living temple. That's what the church is. We are to live as the meeting place between heaven and earth. We become the hot spot between heaven and earth. The place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We are to be in San Francisco for and to the people of San Francisco, the dwelling place of the Most High. That's our mission. We are to embody as a foretaste right here and right now what we are all anticipating, what we're awaiting, what the Bible says is the climax of the story. And what is the climax that we're awaiting? Well, we're given a picture of it at the end of of the entire Bible, the last two chapters. I want you to hear these words from Revelation chapter 21. Listen, listen to this carefully here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sea represents chaos in the scriptures. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, then this is so good, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. John emphasizes it three times so we can't miss it. The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and God himself will be with them. This is where the whole story of the tabernacle finds its fulfillment. Heaven and earth are reunited. And John goes on to say that there is no temple. He makes that really clear. There is no temple in the New Jerusalem. It's unnecessary. Because finally, once again, the whole creation is as God intended. It's all one huge temple. There's no temple structure because God himself has become the eternal, eternal dwelling place of his people. And this is how the story arc of the tabernacle is resolved. No more cherubim guarding the way to God's presence. No more layers of protection. No more special chambers where only one person goes once a year. No more barriers between us and God. Some of you need to hear this message today. For some of you, this is new information. You didn't really know how, how the Bible tells the story. For others of you, this is like a reminder. You, you've heard the story. Maybe some of you are here and you've been striving and you've been straining to feel a closeness to God, and yet God feels quite distant. And that might be because you're not doing it in and through Christ. But even for those who are trying to seek intimacy with God through Christ— there is in us this kind of longing, isn't there? There's a kind of aching for home. I have this sense in me. This, just this like overwhelming sense at times that I just ache for a place that I've never been. 
Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning, is groaning for this moment here. We're aching for home. Augustine, St. Augustine says this um, way back in the, in the 4th century or 5th century. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless. There's an aching and a longing and a groaning. And maybe some of you have begun to wonder, does God even want to be close to me? And so I want you to hear the heart of God. There is nothing that God wants more than to dwell in intimacy with you. Nothing. And if the story of the tabernacle tells us anything, it's that God has gone to absurd lengths to make it possible. He has ransomed us out of slavery. He has established his covenant with us. But he wasn't satisfied to do this at a distance. And so he has come to us in the person of Jesus and offered us his very life, broken, poured out for our sin. And he's given us the first fruits of his unhindered presence in our hearts by the Holy Spirit as we await his coming, as we await the full completion of the story in which we will make our home in God eternally without any barriers. And so I want you to hear the words of Paul in Romans 8. I want, I want to end with these words here. Let these words just soak, soak in. Paul says this. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? He goes on to say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword Paul goes on to say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you join me as we pray? God, we can't even begin to take in the majesty and the mystery of who you are. Your holiness is, would explode our brains if we could even take it in. You are so powerful, so beautiful, so pure, so other. And yet we praise you that you have come to us in Jesus and made a way that we can be in your presence eternally in and through Christ. We thank you that you loved us so much that in the scriptures it says you want to marry us. You want to bring us into your home for all eternity. So Lord, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, my friends here. I pray for anyone who feels this aching longing in their soul today that they will be caught up in a vision of you, Jesus. Jesus, that you would come and you would even tap these people on the shoulder right now. And that you would tell them how much you love them. That you have a plan to draw them into your household. We praise you and we thank you that you love us with this everlasting love. We pray all this in the mighty name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.